You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Okay, welcome once again to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Ben from DreamLoud Studio, here with my co-host, Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. Happy to do another episode for you guys. Uh, we're going to do a, an interesting one. This is a more clickbaity title. We're going to be... <laughs> <laughs> we're, <laughs> yeah, we're not known for clickbaity titles. No. We, we, every now and then you got to give us one. Exactly, exactly. But this this will actually be fun. Before we dive into it today, I, I want to ask my friend Vadim, how have you been doing? Did you survive uh, Black Friday? Yes, I was going to say, man, you're all business today, <laughs> going right into the episode, just plowing right through our uh, luxurious our small talk. And, and yeah, so so I was telling you, I had a couple of things in my shopping cart on Black Friday. Yes. Recording related, plugins, but I ended up not buying anything. And I really, it, it, was, it was weird, man. It took a little bit of like, like meditation almost where I, I put these things in my cart. Some, some of these things were like 90% off on like plug-in boutique or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, wait a minute. And I tried to visualize myself after I purchased this plug-in. Like, okay, I'm going to go into the studio. I'm going to install it. Uh, then what? Let me read again what this does. Like, am I really going to use this? Yeah. And I ended up not getting anything, and it's um, I feel good. I feel good. Although you uh, you made me feel you made me regret <laughs> that a little bit on one of the plugins that we had been no, talking about. I, what about you? How'd you do? Before we get to that, I want to hand you your certificate for passing the twelve step. Yeah, the gas rehab rehabilitation. Yes. Yeah. Thank so you. You are you are better than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh. No, I didn't buy too much. I I had I had set aside like a grand and a half just in case I was going to upgrade my computer and I decided not to. I decided to wait another year before diving into that. Oh, you decided to wait that long? Okay. Yeah. All right. If I can, at least. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll probably keep my eye on things. The biggest uh, factor in my decision to wait, kind of the same reason why you didn't buy any plugins. I was thinking to myself, my workflow is working completely fine for me the way that, <laughs> the way that I'm working yeah. here. And like, it would be nice to get an upgrade, but I can get something better if I save my money now and actually get something more future-proof that I can research more. I, I just mm. really wasn't ready to make that that jump yet. So, Gotcha. Yeah. Well, then congratulations, my friend. You know, wait a minute, but you did buy some things, yes? Yes, I did buy some things, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> so probably the coolest thing I bought was I got another one of those... Um, modeling microphones from Slate. Only this time I got this, this, the small diaphragm condenser. I didn't realize it, but they have a lot more microphones that come with the small diaphragm condenser. And it's only a $150 microphone, which is very reasonable. And That's very reasonable. And um, it emulates everything from the microphone I'm talking to you through right now, the SM7B up to a Royer 121. Which, the small diaphragm does? It's a small diaphragm condenser? Yeah. Wow. And it emulates all these. And granted, it's probably not as good as the real, the real deal, but how much is a Royer 121? It's almost a grand, isn't it? It's a very Something expensive like microphone. It's a, yeah, it's very expensive. 
I can't afford that. You know, come to think of it, I I did see a video of a guy recording a whole drum kit with nothing but those slate small diaphragm microphones and mm-hmm. using the emulations. And um, yeah, I remember being impressed with it. It seems like a very cool system. Yeah, it's very cool. And if for nothing else, it just gives me a way to kind of experiment around and see what I like and what I don't like. So like I, I just got a couple things that I knew that I would use all the time, but I just decided to save my money and instead of... Instead of getting that, like, because it is, it's like an emotional high from, like, making a pur- making a purchase. Yeah. Instead of doing that, I wanted to focus my energy on creating and doing more projects. There you go. It's a better, better payoff. I like that. That's very good. So, you teased our episode today, but you didn't actually say what it was called. No, I didn't. And if I can remember what I titled it, I'll let you know. But basically, this is our... This is our top five recording myths that we used to believe, but after 2020 and experimentation and research on our own, we've dis- we've, we're debunking these recording myths. Yes, specifically well, myths we've debunked this year. So this yes. is going to be maybe an annual exercise for us. I like it. Some That's... of these are going to be, some cool. of these are going to be cheeky, I'm sure. We've talked about the fact that we're going to do this, so we're doing it. Let's dive in. What are we doing? Top five? I think we said top five. Yeah, maybe top five. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's hear it, man. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's go back and forth. Yeah. We'll, we'll each give our first, and then we might jump around, because I'm sure we'll have maybe one or two overlap. We, we tend to always, we always say this, let's see if we line up or not, and then we exactly line up, except for one. I don't know about this one, man. Mine are pretty <laughs> off the wall. I tried to really be, like, controversial. Okay, <laughs> cool. Time. I'm excited because I felt like, I mean, mine were very important breakthroughs for me, but they're not necessarily like, they're not groundbreaking either. They're things okay, that I kind of okay. knew before, but I just proved them to myself. Let's see if I actually follow my advice though. Okay, here's number one. The way I'm stating this is, this is the myth and I'm going to debunk it. So the myth is, yep, yep. you need a vast, number one, you need a vast mic locker with each microphone specialized for a unique purpose to record a full band. And I'm going to say that that's absolutely false. You can easily record a full band with one or two microphones. Ooh, okay. Easily done. I feel like... Can you do it, Ben? Can you do it with your 14 mic drum setup? (laughs) I could. I could do it. (laughs) I mean, it wouldn't be necessarily what I would want to do, but I could. Okay, okay. And I I think the real lesson from this, it isn't so much that recording a band with one mic or two mics is better. It's just kind of teaching you that to use what you have rather than feeling like you have to buy all this stuff to be able to get a sound or do something. Yeah. And, and, and I really do feel like with an SM57 and a large diaphragm condenser, you can pretty much capture whatever you want to capture. I totally agree with you. I've been saying this for for years and it's one of those things like like you said some of these things we say and we believe but you still have to kind of prove them to yourself from time to time so i'm curious what in 2020 led you to this conclusion like why did this make your list i think the real big thing was that i just always and this kind of gets into maybe some of my other ones so i'll try not to reveal the next uh numbers on my list but I had this habit of 
just wanting to put as many mics on a source to record stuff as possible. Because and and this is a great exercise if you're just learning to record or you want to like do a mic shootout. You want to see mm-hmm. what works and what doesn't work. And I think what I found this year in particular after doing this for a while and and kind of figuring things out and doing these these shootouts, I found that the biggest difference was my experience more so than the microphones I was using. I've heard people tongue in cheek joke around about this in other studios where uh, somebody will ask them the question, what's the best microphone to record a guitar cabinet with or a snare drum with? And their ans- mm-hmm. and the answer is whatever microphone is closest to where I'm sitting. And that's a hilarious mm. response. But what they're trying to get at is it's actually more important the knowledge that you have on recording and the experience that you've gathered together. Like I know that specifically talking into this SM7B is going to make my voice sound a particular way just from using it mm-hmm. so much. Really, I kind of just realized that at this point, I can record any source with any microphone. It might not be the most ideal microphone to record any source, but I know that I work. could make it work. Exactly. Yeah. And so so you mentioned, you know, you used to put a lot of microphones on things are you still doing that or are you more and more going with like, I'm going to use this microphone for this application and I'm not going to put a second microphone on it because I just trust that this is going to get me a workable result? It depends. I mean, this does get into one of my other ones, so I'll, I'll give a different all angle. Right, right. I'll you give can, a different angle on it. But all I'll say about that now is if I have the time, I'll totally put a bunch of microphones on a, on a sound source. But if I'm trying to record a band and I'm time crunched... I just pick the best microphone or two microphones and I just go with it. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. I think I've I'm in my workflow erring in that same direction or I'm moving in that same direction. I used to always put two microphones on a vocalist. Um, even when I was recording somebody on like a paid project, just to see which one I liked more. And I'm doing that less now because it's more setup time, it's more I have to deal with, more tracks, it's confusing for the singer, and more and more I'm just trusting that I have, I know what my, I only use maybe really only two microphones on vocals, and I know what they sound like, and I just pick one and go with it, so I agree with you. Awesome. My number one myth, and these are not in any order, but my first myth is that when it comes to arrangement, less is more. Okay, mm-hmm. that's my myth. And for years and years, I've kind of, I've heard this and I've really subscribed to it in the sense that I liked sparser arrangements that had only, you know, I liked less track counts and keeping things simple and just giving everything a purpose. But what changed my mind is actually this band I'm working with now, which is a band Giant Clam from Australia. And it's like a it's a five piece prog band. They have three guitarists, a bass player, and a drummer playing some long songs, complicated music. There's like twenty five guitar tracks on every song that these guys wow. are sending me, and it was like it's a lot of tracks, and it's all guitar tracks that they're layering effects and synth sounds and all these different layers. And what I realized working on these projects was that. Okay, these guys, three guitarists, they each have their own pedal boards, their own gear, their own sound, their own amps. 
they're creating these weird, unique sounds that are completely original to them, and they're layering them together in a very cool way. Then they're giving those tracks to me. I have my own ear. I have my own tips and tricks. I have my own tools that are unique to me, and I'm further processing all of these layers. Mm-hmm. And then when you combine them, you get these sonic landscapes and textures I was thinking about it. It's almost like encryption. Like you couldn't reverse engineer what, <laughs> what we did because yeah, I already don't understand how they got some of the sounds they're giving me and I'm mangling them even further. And what I realized was like, I have these albums that I love, that I listen to. And I think now that I have this recording mindset, I think like, how did they do that? How did they get that sound? And sometimes I genuinely hear albums where I'm like, I have no freaking idea how they did that. And I'm realizing that working on this album, that this is how you get that kind of result mm-hmm. is by layering a lot of different stuff on it. And also I'm finding with so many tracks from a mixing standpoint, I get a lot of happy accidents where I'm like, I'll accidentally send something, a group of guitars to the wrong effects bus. And I'll be like, oh my God, what is that noise? And three out of four times it's terrible and I have to find it and fix it. But one out of four times it's gold <laughs> and I keep it. Yeah. And so anyway, so my myth is less is more. I found that you can create really cool textures and landscapes by playing around and layering a ton of stuff and you'll get something that is completely unique and mm. unable to be reverse engineered. I love it. That's great. It's kind of, so I'll I'll frame it in a different way. More is less until it isn't. Okay. All right. I like that. Yeah. I'm going to get that as a bumper sticker. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> so I kind of do this same kind of a thing a lot because I'm a huge fan of big productions, as you know, with my huge hundred, hundred track song counts and yep, all the other yep. crap I'm doing. I do think that I need to learn more of the less is more for my productions. Mm. But with that being said, uh, I've had that same revelation as you where um, this one artist I was working on her pop music with and I was trying to get that modern pop sound and a more like uh, electronic synthy kind of pop sound and the way that I did that was by combining a massive amount of synths and strings together to the point where I kind of went overboard but overboard in kind of a good way where you just hear this wall of sound happening and it's more of a texture than it is an actual instrument that makes more of a feeling than it does an actual part and so mm, yep. I would say with that, you know, if that's the sound you're going for, then go for it. But I've definitely been guilty of doing too much. Yes. And that's why I think these are, you know, personal myths because I've erred on the side of doing less. And what I've learned is like, yeah, sometimes it's cool to do a lot. <laughs> actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's very from a, cool from though. An arrangement standpoint. That's a surprising one. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What's your next one? I might have started learning this one back in 2019, but I'll claim it as a 2021. Uh, This is the myth. Spend as much time as you need to find the perfect tone for your next recorded track. Okay. Yes. Okay. And I'm a huge perfectionist. Uh, So this was, this was a tough thing for me to kind of grasp and uh, start to implement in my own recording workflow. But I would say that the counterpoint to that is chasing the perfect recording tone is the enemy of capturing a great tone. Ooh, love it. It's easiest for me to to do this on bass because I've been playing bass for so long, but now I just like, I'll plug in my bass, make sure it's in tune, it has fresh strings on it, 
I'll just plug it straight into the interface. And the first like virtual amp tone that I could find that sounds even remotely decent, I just stick with it. And then I might tweak it after I record it, but I really prefer that to like messing around and just wasting a whole bunch of time. Dude, that is brilliant. And I actually almost put this on my list and I wish I did because this is actually something I've learned from you. There was some other, I can't remember if it was an episode or we were talking offline. Yeah, I think it was when on uh, recording bass and you said, I pulled up this, uh, this plugin and like the first preset that came up, I just loved it and I went with it. And for some reason that really resonated with me. Hmm. And I've been, I have been doing that actually. And I'm surprised this didn't make my list because I too, I I used to spend a year ago, I would spend hours trying to craft my perfect tone. And now more and more, I do find myself going like, this sounds good. What am I going to get by squeezing another three hours into this? And uh, yeah, man. So kudos to you. And uh, thank you for teaching that lesson to me as well. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, we're st- we're all learning it all the time. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. What's your second? My second myth is that less is more when it comes to your signal chain. Okay, mm, so okay. <laughs> this is one I've just recently started playing around with and I've kind of been blown away by the results. So just a little bit of background. I've talked about this a little bit before, but most of my mixing happens in the in the box, but I do have three pieces of hardware that I send all my mixes through that I just have settled on these three pieces very specifically over many years of trial and error. And I love these three pieces of gear. But two of these pieces of gear have uh, built-in compressors and output transformers. And this one time I was doing a session and I was like, what happens if I route my preamps through the transformers and then back in like use the transformers as an insert effectively like a hardware plug-in and i tried it and i was kind of blown away like transformers if you're not familiar with them they add some harmonic content and they kind of round off your transients a little bit and each one kind of does its own little thing what i found was that i don't prefer it on every source but specifically on vocals and bass i really like the way it filled out uh, the frequencies of these instruments. And this is something I never considered because I would always just, my goal was always to capture the most pristine tones possible. So I would plug in my microphone directly into my preamp, record a nice clean signal at a nice clean level and go with it. And then I could do something in the mix. And what I'm finding now is like, no, adding some complexity to that signal chain and specifically playing around with these two transformers was like, this is mm. cool. I need to explore this a little bit further because this is a nice sonic characteristic that adds something to the recording. I like it, man. So for people who don't have analog gear, I mean, the same concept applies, I think, to recording guitars, let's say, with effects already on them. Mm-hmm. I think, again, our tendency is to err on the age of digital recording, to err on getting the most pristine recordings possible and then, like, monkeying with them later. But, like... If you like something that's going through your delay pedal, just record that and just go yeah. with it. I think it's it's a, it's a good workflow. I agree with that. Sometimes I'll even add, like I'll print delays on my guitar tones because I like them. It's part of the tone. But then yep. I'll add even more reverb and delay to that after the fact. Sure. Yeah, why not? I mean, I don't do that a ton of the time, but sometimes I will. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Yeah, there's nothing wrong to committing to tones. I think is I guess I guess ultimately what we're going yeah. with. But yeah, I, I like like I said, the myth is that less is more. Uh, no, sometimes it's cool to put in some stuff and mangle your signal a little bit if it's if it's working for you. I've run into this with vocals a lot where let's say you have a really banging like heavy speed or metalcore whatever genty mix going on. And you have a clean vocalist that's singing in there. Sometimes that clean vocal, when it's recorded so pristine, it just will not sit in there no matter what you do. And you have to like make it dirty and mangle it for it oh, yeah, to make any sure. sense. Yeah. So I, I love that. Cool. What's your number three? My number three, and I kind of foreshadowed this back in number one, but my number three myth is when recording a sound source, use as many microphones as possible and at your... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to give you options later on for blending and selecting tones. Uh, my only caveat to this is, like I said earlier, this is a great way to do shootouts and learn your actual microphones by mm. taking a day to do this and just take every microphone you have and put it on a sound source and just see what it does. But when it comes to getting things done and recording people, I like to stick with as few microphones as possible like one or two max. Very rarely will I ever throw a third microphone in there now. And I used to be like notorious for like doing four or five. It's just way too much. Yes. I think your caveat there is so huge because it's incredibly important. And we talked about this on the um, So You Want to Produce Music for a Living episode. It's incredibly important to go deep on your gear and to understand the gear you have and how it sounds. So you need to do those shootout exercises. You need to absolutely take two hours, put all your microphones, like Ben said, on a sound source and compare them all carefully and take notes. But once you've done that a couple of times and you start to get a feel for what the microphones sound like, then yeah, just grab the tool you want, you know, is going to work for the job. Mm -hmm. So uh, I love that. And I love your caveat there. Great. All right. We're on to your third. Okay. My Myth number three that I've busted this year for myself is that clipping is always bad. Okay. <laughs> what kind of clipping <laughs> and, we're talking and, here? <clears throat> right, right. So this is the key here because this is a very, very, con I'm sure a lot of people are fidgeting and, and sweating a little bit. Um, uh, my initial preconceived notion was that clipping is always bad, mm. period. Gotcha. I don't want to clip when I'm recording. I don't want to clip any of my meters while I'm mixing, I don't want to clip at any point in my process. Okay, so that's the myth I'm busting. I still think clipping is bad when you're recording. <laughs> you do not want to clip uh, while you're recording. But clipping while you're mixing and playing around with clipping actually yields some very interesting results. And now I use clipping in some fashion on most aggressive mixes that I do. Interesting. It's one of those things where even if you hear like the industry giants talk about clipping, it's still a relatively new practice. I think mm -hmm. it's people are still figuring out what to do with it. But just the, bare, the, the basics, what we know about clipping, right? If you clip a signal, you're pushing some digital system beyond a point where it can represent your waveform accurately. And as opposed to like compression, where you're getting this kind of gentle squeezing of the peaks... Clipping is like taking a pair of scissors and just snipping off the top of the waveform. You're just getting these this very rough, abrupt cut of the waveform. 
And typically that can lead to like a harsh distortion. Mm -hmm. But the key is in it's a harsh distortion. Sometimes you may want that harsh distortion as an effect and it can be effective in making something stand out of yeah. a busy mix. And so uh, I've been playing around with this on certain things and uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, it's it's now part of the toolbox, so I'm still kind of learning the ins and outs of how to use it. That's really cool. I need to I need to start messing around with clipping again. I I played around I played around with it a lot a year or two ago, and I kind of just mm. I kind of just left it alone because it really wasn't doing anything different for me that I felt like I already wasn't getting in my workflow. But I do like your. I do like the way that you talked about it as giving you kind of a different flavor of a similar thing with compression. It's a harsher thing. Uh, the, yep. That makes me kind of think this isn't like a apples to apples comparison, but it reminds me of like um, if you have like a synthesizer that has uh, LFOs, low frequency mm. oscillators, and you can select a sine wave versus a square wave. It's kind mm. of similar to that. Like a compressor would be more of a sine wave that's smooth and uh, a clipper would be more of a square wave that just sounds harsh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's more like that. It's not the same thing, but it's more like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of thinking about it. Cool. All right. What's your, what's your number four? Number four, this is a big one. And, and you saw the beginnings of this, uh, this myth being broken in my bass episode that we did on the DIY recording guys. Okay. Uh, oh boy, I think I know what this is going to be. Let's yeah, hear it. <laughs> so I'm just going to lump it all in together and I'll I'll just accept the hate that I'll receive from the Gear Slits Forum if any of those guys <laughs> listen here. <laughs> but my number fourth myth that I busted this year was real amplifiers, cabs, and acoustic drums always sound better than virtual amps, drums, instruments. And I just don't think that's true anymore. <laughs> And in fact, I say here, uh, leave your drums and cabs at home because I'll take my virtual amps instruments against your cab any day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Dude, it's true. It's scary, man. Uh, well, okay. So, so talk about what in 2020 led to you changing your mind on this. I know the bass episode is one of them, but what else? Um, playing around a lot more with programming. Programming drums. And a lot of times, like I still will, if I, if I have a good drummer and I play with a couple really good drummers in my bands that I play with, I'd prefer to probably record their acoustic drum kits because they have awesome sounding kits as well. Mm. But, uh, it takes a really, really, really good drummer, a really well-maintained kit and a lot, a ton of effort to keep them in tune to just get like really good recorded shells. And then if we're mm. talking about the, uh, the symbols used to be the thing that the sample packs didn't have as well, but um, pretty much any of the modern sample packs that are out there, they've got really good sounding symbols and stuff that I can't afford, <laughs> like minor symbols that are $400, $500 a symbol. Mm. Um, so when it comes to that, and especially combined with, you know, maybe your drummer's not the greatest and it's, it just sounds better to program them or to record them on a MIDI pad. Or I shouldn't say better. It's cleaner. It's quicker mm. to do it that way. 
And I, th I think just seeing the results I was getting with drums really started to change my mind about that a lot. Well, let me ask you this. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I've been programming drums. That, that's how I got into this whole mess was trying to program drums. And that's what led me down the rabbit hole of recording was trying to record my own music. And to do that, I needed to program drums. But are you, are you saying more from just a purely a tonal standpoint? Or are you like, like, for, I guess, for example, what about recording a good drummer on a really mediocre kit but then doing shell replacement with samples like or something like that or are you saying like forget the whole thing leave your drummer at home <laughs> i'll take care of it <laughs> you know in some ways i would agree with the latter a little bit because we've been running into this problem in the fell where jake our drummer he's phenomenal and he's been yeah he's great he's really good at programming as well like he'll mm -hmm. he'll record all his parts on a MIDI kit and then he'll go in by hand and then like paint all of the velocities and just he's really meticulous about it and I think that's great uh, that he mm -hmm. embraces it. The problem we've run into though is that not all DAWs treat I don't know why but they they don't treat that MIDI information the same and in the conversion from one program to another all the velocities have been messed up. Or from one sample pack library huh. to another, they're messed up. And we know that's true. If you program something that's say yes. in your in your stock like um virtual drum program, and okay, so this velocity is a rim shot and all these other are really loud. That doesn't translate across the board for these sample packs. Absolutely. So think about all the time spent, you know, just making sure it sounds perfect and then you send it off to somebody else and all those velocities get erased or they all sound like rim shots. That's a great point. And we, we did talk about that on the how to make MIDI sound real episode. Mm -hmm. The sample pack you're using in a lot of ways is going to dictate what your velocities and what your programming needs to look like. If you're not, if you're confused on what we're talking about, go back and listen to, we've done two MIDI episodes now, one on uh, why MIDI is your new BFF. That's the intro. Uh, should have the episode numbers. Let me look them up real quick here. Episode 20 was what MIDI is and why it's your new BFF. That's the intro to MIDI episode. If you're completely new to this and you're not, uh, don't know what MIDI is. And then episode 42 was how to make MIDI sound real, which is kind of like the MIDI 201 episode. Yeah. And yeah, on that episode, we talked a lot about sample libraries and why those different velocities matter. So that's a really interesting point, Ben. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll concede, man. I mean, I'm with you on the amps as well. Uh, this is something that I, I've struggled for years and years. I, I started playing around with amp modeling in 2006. Mm. Specifically the, because I... I back I, in the days of the Line 6 Pod, right? Exactly. I still have my Line 6 Pod. And I had a big Marshall 2x12 that lived at my friend's house from the band we were in in high school. And... I moved to an apartment in California for work and I had no way, I had no amp with me. I had no way to play loud guitars. So I started playing around with amp modeling back then and it was just horrified. I couldn't get anything remotely sounding like a real guitar amp. And that was true for the better part of, well, really until, yeah, until this year. This year for me as well was the first year that I could get amp emulations that 
sounded believable and that I liked the sound of maybe even more than my amps. So, yeah, yeah, I would agree I'm with, with you. I'd agree with that too. Like I was, I mean, I was getting stuff with that dark glass plug-in that I'm like, this is better than anything I could mic up on my cabs. Yeah. And so yeah, that's true. Let's speak for itself. It's, and it's yeah, not, sure. you know, the last thing I'll say about that is, and it's not necessarily that the virtual stuff sound or the digital stuff sounds better. It's when you add it all up, like, for the longest time, that used to be the biggest knock on digital is that it doesn't sound anywhere near as good. But if you only heard analog, it was better. And now it's like so close. Like digital is like almost like within 99% as good as the real deal. But you have something that's cheaper. It's fully recallable in your computer. Yeah. You don't have to write down any settings. Uh, the sound isolation is a huge thing too. You don't have to worry about decoupling your cabs. Uh, making sure it's in a room that's isolated if you're putting condenser mics on it. So just for all of these reasons, you know, it, it's just a, it's a yeah. big win. I mean, for, for my own project, depending on what the project is, I'll still record real amps. But like for me, recording real amp means dragging a cabinet out into my quote unquote amp room, which is just the garage attached to my house. Yeah. Setting up a mic. Two mics at least, because I, I like to run at least two mics usually on cabs, putting a blanket over it, letting the tube amp warm up, routing everything, plugging in everything, getting tones, getting my gain staging right, or I could pull yeah. up one of these fantastic amp emulations. So I still record real amps from time to time because it's fun. And I like it, and it's still unique. It's my gear. It's yeah. my stuff. Only I can get it. That's true. Uh, but for more and more, I'm reaching for the plugins um, because they're so freaking convenient and they sound so good. You know what this reminds me of? This is kind of like what you just described there is kind of like debating between like, do you want to have a garden where you grow all your vegetables, or do you, do you just want to order from one of these like? HelloFresh or whatever companies where they deliver organic food. What's your goal? If you just want good food, you can pay somebody for that and it, make it convenient. <laughs> but if you want, if you want it to be a, like a religious experience where you put your blood, sweat, and tears <laughs> yeah. into it, I mean that's kind of what it is. And there's something to yeah, be said yeah. for that. Absolutely. I like it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. All right. My number four myth is that you have to edit every single track before you start mixing. I okay. used to be, yeah, I used to be so meticulous about editing. I would go through every single track on a session I got to mix and I would edit out every single little noise, every single little click and pop. I would go through and just get everything perfect before I even started mixing. And that was like a little bit of an OCD thing I had. What I found now, more and more I'm doing, because it's more efficient and because I think my final product is as good, you can't tell the difference, is I will edit the big things. I will, you know, I'll, I'll pull up little rhythmic things on drums and bass, for example, but, and vocals, obviously, I'll, I'll treat main vocals as well. But the rest of it, I'm content to edit in the mix. And what I mean by that is, as I'm mixing, if I hear something that doesn't sound right, I will edit it. If I don't hear something that doesn't sound right, then why would I edit it? Yeah. <laughs> if I can't hear that it's wrong, I mean, you might be able to hear, listening to any track in, in, 
in isolation, you'll undoubtedly find yeah. a couple of things that you want to tweak. But if you can't tell that they're there in the mix, this is me talking to myself. Yeah. If you can't tell that they're there in the mix, why take the extra hour, two hours, three hours to go through and edit that? So more and more, I'm editing the big things, drums, bass, again, keep keeping all that stuff tight. The rest of it, if I hear something wrong in the mix, I'll fix it. If not, and keep on going. What do you think? I love it, man. I don't think it's quite the same perspective, but um, I remember so many times where I've recorded like a big EP or project and then immediately before mixing, I just spent so many hours just editing everything to yep. the point where I wanted to quit being a studio after <laughs> editing because it's just so brutal and not fun at all. Like it's the least yeah. fun part of having a studio or recording, at least in my yeah. mind. Uh, and I definitely have had, you know, I've had a tendency to go overboard. And I think I'm still trying to find that fine balance between like editing enough, but not under editing so that you just constantly are hearing problems you need to fix. Because I've definitely run into that. There's Yes, there's this, there's this one song that I eventually will send you to get your, your ear on it, but... Um, I have rhythm electric guitar and acoustic guitar coming in at the same time. And I had already edited everything after I recorded it. But then as I started mixing it, just because I was brightening, brightening it so much, uh, the picking articulations came out and I realized they're not in time at all. And it's actually really distracting and bothering me. <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll have yeah. that happen every now and again, where as I'm mixing and adding more clarity to things, then the parts that are off or that I feel like are acceptably off become more and more annoying to me. Yes, that's fair. Okay. So you, you brought up a really good point there. If something needs, you, you definitely don't want to slow your mixing workflow down yeah. because something needs so much editing and you didn't do your upfront work. So I agree with you there. I think I do listen and I kind of decide like the big things that need to be fixed. Uh, absolutely. So I, I think that is important. I, I agree with you there. So you're talking more about like you were strip silencing everything that like didn't need, that didn't yes. have like a usable part. Okay. Yes. And even like for guitars, uh, right. Like I would edit every single little guitar bit to be tight to the bass. And I would, mm. I mean, also because, you know, a lot of the stuff I've worked on over the past year has, has been needed that kind of rhythmic tightness but again there's a time and place for that but more and more i'm finding like the big things have to be right and the rest of it i'll fix as it comes up i've started to learn some of this laziness in my workflow and i just call it <laughs> <laughs> don't call it that <laughs> no i know i know i'm just joking <laughs> but no i do this all the time when i'm recording bass just don't tell don't tell the clients i've recorded for but okay. like <laughs> A lot of times, like, especially if it's an easy song and I've played bass for so long, like I know what it needs to sound like or what I can get away with in a mix or not. And this one song I was just recording actually a couple of days ago, I put in this bass line and I was just listening back to everything to make sure there weren't any weird pops or clicks. And I heard that I accidentally like raked over another string. And so I let an open string ring for like a split second. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll just leave it, <laughs> you know, because you're not going to be able to hear that in context of everything else. And why spend the time fixing something that doesn't need to be fixed? It's a cool artifact. Yeah. It's something that adds like humanity. It's like, oh, 
I didn't play it perfectly. And it's kind of like being okay with, I guess it goes back to my, you know, number two, as far as like trying to get the perfect tone. This is more of the perfect editing and the perfect performance, like letting go of like perfect performances. Yes, yes, absolutely. And this is hard to do because a lot of our listeners and for ourselves as well, a lot of the stuff we're working on, it's really, it's our baby. We're, we're putting mm-hmm. our all into it. And so we want it to be as good as it possibly can be. Uh, but more and more, if you kind of listen to your songs in the context of the way you listen to other people's songs, yeah, that stuff becomes less important. And I'm thinking like maybe my favorite album of 2020 was Fiona Apple's album. And there are so many like room noises on there, people dropping stuff, a dog barking that actually adds to the album because it feels like just humans in a house recording it, which is exactly what it was. And uh, yeah, and like I said, it's not not I'm not the only one saying this. That's on a lot of people's top top lists for the albums of uh, 2020. That's cool. I got I got to check it out. I didn't realize that she released the. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. It's one of her best. Cool. Yeah, man, what's your five? All right, so I guess this will be the last one unless we have some bonus ones, but my number five is, this is a cool one, and I actually posted about this kind of in the uh, DIY Recording Guys community. Subtle little shout out there. Go join (laughs) up. (laughs) And I definitely learned this from YouTube whenever I was um, first starting to learn how to record, especially acoustic guitar. The way I was shown to do it is set up two um, small diaphragm condensers and point. I know you do a variation of this, but you use a large diaphragm and a small diaphragm condenser, right? Yep. So the way I was taught is you use two condenser microphones and you put place one off of the, facing the sound hole, but off of the neck. And the other is facing the sound hole, but off of the bridge. And you can kind of pan those and get a stereo sound. And I did that for the longest time. And there's nothing wrong with miking that way. My my problem was is a lot of times I was doing the recording and I just felt like I was so like stationary, like I couldn't move at all because I had to have this this perfect mm. uh, orientation to the microphones. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It didn't yeah, feel yeah. natural. And I had heard about the XY recording technique i'll just try to briefly describe to you what it is but you basically place it's normally used with small diaphragm condensers but you set them up so that they're at 90 degree angles to each other with the capsule with each capsule basically right over top of the other so that they're essentially at the same point but kind of capturing 90 degree different directions yes exactly so i've started recording acoustic guitar this way and it sounds so awesome. I can't believe the stereo spread that I get from it. And the cool thing about where do you the, where do you put them? Like the, uh, the the microphones, where are they in relation to the guitar? They would be kind of pointed straight at me, right where the um, the neck meets the the body of the guitar. Okay, so the but hole. like he- straight on facing. I mean, they're they're at ninety degree angles, but like if you were to draw a line bisecting that 90 degrees it would be pointed right at the joint where the neck meets the body of the guitar yeah and how far from the guitar good questions um i've been set up about 
probably about five feet away, four four feet, five feet oh, away. Oh, really? That far? Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. You could definitely get closer, but that's- So you're capturing, are you, are you getting a lot of room in that? A little bit of room. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. That's farther than I've- uh, You've I've, seen it I've done? I've played around with. Well, you got to be, I think you got to be, in my case, I'd start to get concerned about my my room- getting too many first reflections from yeah, my room, that's true. which is small and not great sounding. Uh, so anyway, yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, but the thing I love about it is that it kind of frees me up to like kind of move yeah. around a little bit more that's more natural. And you kind of get an interesting, uh, like a slight phase wobble, but that sounds good. Like instead of phase, really? I guess I could say it's more of like a panning type of a thing. Because if you think about it, that... That mic um, array is very sensitive to your proximity. Like if you move a little bit, and um, it's going to get much louder on one of those microphones, which means that your your panning is going to huh. be, it, you know what I mean? Oh, it's, so in other words, you you're, you're getting like some movement in the stereo field yeah, from the guitar. Yeah. Interesting. I'll have to try that. It's very cool, um, and I find also too that it. I don't know. It feels simpler, and I'm much more satisfied with recording a single stereo acoustic guitar track and just putting that in the mix. Rather than before, what I was doing is I was always doing doubles and panning them wide with acoustic, even mm. if I did the like the two microphone positions. So right. it's it's just something different that I've kind of discovered, and I really like it. I think I like it more than. The other way of doing it. Awesome. Yeah, we got to do an episode sometime on recording acoustic guitars because something I've, I've, I. It's probably been five years since I've done like a comprehensive shootout using different mic positions, and the conclusions I drew at that time were very different actually than the method I'm using now. So it would be good to kind of revisit that at some yeah. point. We'll have to we'll have to write that down. Cool. My number five, oh man, I you know I hate now reading back at these. These are all like laziness. It seems like I'm getting lazier, but I'm <laughs> I'm not. <I> don't <laughs> no, you're just freeing up your time to spend on yes on more important things. That, that's a big part of it. But this one in particular, I mean, I think in general, a lot of these myths are myths for me because I tended to be so OCD about stuff that I was, it was like paralysis by analysis, right? I would spend so much time on these little, on this minutia that I would like mm. eventually lose the thread of where, what the song was about. And so part of this is me getting over myself. And I, I, I'm, I, I don't think these myths and this one in particular are great for everyone in every case. Yeah. I think these are things that I've, I'm trying to free myself from these OCD burdens. But my number five myth is that you have to be really well prepared for pre-production. Okay. And this again comes out of some sessions I've done. I, I typically am the type of person who likes to be really well prepared. I like to know the songs in and out, especially if I'm going to be playing on them. Uh, but in I had a couple of sessions this year where that wasn't the case. I roughly knew the songs, but I didn't know the chord progressions exactly and these particular songs I was playing bass and I didn't I had no idea what I was going to play but in the pre-production session I sat down with the with the songwriter and just kind of let it flow he just kind of jammed out on the songs and I found that I was really happy with the bass lines I was coming up with cuz they were just kind of like 
they would evolve a little bit. I would just play kind of what f- seemed to feel right. I had the chord chart, and then it would evolve a little bit, and then I would be like, this is actually good. I'm happy with this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take it, as opposed to like sitting there for days overanalyzing it and trying to find the perfect baseline. So, yeah, give me your thoughts on that. I love this. This is this is kind of my... As far as playing and performing and recording, this is my mojo. I love working out of this like unprepared space. My goal when I was growing up and becoming a bass player and wanting to get really good at it, my goal was to get my uh, my improv skills, my my ear training skills, so my uh, the quickness that I'd be able to like identify chord progressions and keys and be able to play along with it and just the techniques. Uh, I wanted to get them to a place that was well enough beyond any of the stuff I would ever need to play or would want to record so that everything would feel easy. And I could kind of free myself from the strings of just the technique of playing and could only just solely think about how it makes me feel. Hmm. Wow, I love it. That's deep. Yeah, and I... I think I kind of gained an appreciation for this growing up watching li- watching and listening to bands like um, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Incubus, which if you ever go see them at a live show, they're just so full of improv. And it's just very cool and, and like ethereal just kind of to see these bands just operate at that level. And it just really it's inspired me. It's like the me essence to, of, of musicianship, yeah. Yeah. And so... That's kind, of, that's kind of always been my goal, and I'm definitely being stretched way beyond my limits with my NFL project that I'm a part of now because that, that stuff is beyond my playing ability, so I need to angle up my chops quickly. But, that stuff um, is, that's, that's a different animal, yeah. Different animal, but <laughs> anything that I really kind of write just naturally, like my playing ability is so far beyond because I, 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 I write more along the lines of like hard rock. I'm not doing any super complicated gent or anything like that, even though I love that style. But um, I got my abilities beyond the point of the stuff that I would ever be writing just so that I could get in that like creative mm. workspace in my brain. And Because I think that you come up with the best ideas when you can just kind of operate at the you know flow state. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I, I love that. I think that's a great one. Cool. You got any other... Any other for us? I know you said you maybe have a bonus. Yeah, I just wanted to blow it all up and just say analog gear is better than digital plugins as my myth. <laughs> <laughs> just Agreed. blow it up Agreed. at the end. No argument for me there. <laughs> so you okay. so you like you you agree that plugins are better than analog gear, or do you still like your analog gear better? So yeah, I mean I, I say this all the time, but I I, I feel like. There's no reason for anybody to have analog gear. But when I AB shoot out my analog gear against the plug-in emulations of that analog gear, in a blind test, 100% of the time, I can pick the analog gear and I prefer the way it sounds. Okay. Is it, is it a 20% difference? No. And so for that reason, I'm saying like, I don't think anybody needs or should have analog gear. It's expensive. The mix recallability is terrible. You have to write down your settings from mix to mix. There are so many disadvantages. 
But for me, the the specific gear that I have has become like a part of my sound. Yeah. And I like it. I like seeing the needles go up and down and <laughs> twisting the knobs. And um, yeah, and that I mean, at this point, like a lot of this stuff, again, because we always talk about it's a labor of love. We just do this because we love it. If I can, anything that lets me squeeze another like couple of percent betterness out of something is cool. I, you know, yeah, is it, it is. does it make or break? Does it make or break a song? Absolutely not. But like, I don't. I'm having fun. I'm just like doing this stuff. <laughs> yeah, man. I I agree. I th- I think that's a good that's a good summary. Well, good list, cool. man. These were these are really good ones, and you gave me a lot. Well, yeah, I got too. one. I got a bonus one to piss oh, yeah. you off too. Okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> give me. <laughs> All right, my bonus one is that you. My bonus myth is that you must always have new bass strings to record bass. Okay. Okay. And, okay. and <laughs> what I'll say is, like, for certain genres, like for hard rock and metal, yeah, it's 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 pretty important to have new bass strings. But I've done some recordings this year for like folk, more like folk, folk country singer songwriter stuff. And I've used a four-string bass that I don't, haven't changed the strings on. And I can't tell you the last time I changed the strings on them. It sounds really warm and round and woodsy. And it sounds good. And I was happy with the recordings I got. So, so there. What do you think? I'd agree with you there. In fact, recording those styles, <laughs> if you change your strings, that's a, that's a grave sin. Oh, really? Uh, I'm just playing around. I did hear okay. that um, <laughs> the rumor is that James Jamerson, who played based on all the Motown albums for like year for decades never changed his bass strings once on his not better decades. jazz probably not decades no i mean he didn't change his strings for decades that would be crazy yeah that's true he didn't I, I, yeah he didn't change his strings ever on his fender jazz bass <laughs> isn't that amazing that is amazing. Um, yeah, no, I remember you saying that, and I was—I I actually made me feel better because this is like a guilty. I, this is a guilty conscience thing for me because when I started doing it, I was—it was purely out of laziness. It was like, well, this is not—I don't think it's critical for this song, and I'm just going to see what it sounds like. And if it sounds bad, I have a five-string bass with brand new strings on it. This is—I'm talking about a specific session, but I recorded it with the old strings, and I was like, it sounds. Good. It's actually kind of what I want out of yeah. the bass sound. So I just went with it. And so, yeah. Fair enough, man. Dang it. I, all my things were laziness things. People are going to listen to this <laughs> and think that I'm just the lazy engineer. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it, though, because I'm the, I'm the same way. Because we're also balancing, just so that people that are listening understand this. Because if this is just your hobby or you're just getting into it, or or it's your your project for your band, it is totally okay to go overboard <laughs> and spend a whole bunch of time yeah, just agreed. getting the best stuff that you possibly can. But from Vadim and my perspective, when we're trying to make our clients happy and record a whole bunch of artists and make this, make this what we're doing in actual living, any, anything where we can cut time out of our process is a win for us. So you have to balance the the economics of spending a whole bunch of time getting something one or 0.5% better or just settling on the 99%. Well said. Sweet. Well, this was a fun one. Yeah. Good stuff. We'll see what we come up with next year. I can't wait. All right. Well, as we always say, remember guys to check yourselves. Peace.
before you wreck yourself. Have a good one. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.